Thanks for listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Rick Zamprin in for Bill. Hamilton's police chief and mayor apologizing after a report found the police response to violence at the 2019 Pride Festival was inadequate. We're going to chat with the Toronto lawyer who authored that report. Does systemic racism exist in police departments across Canada and should police be defunded? We ask Hamilton Police Association President Clint Tulin. And with more COVID-19 related restrictions being relaxed across Ontario, are some people in Hamilton willing to take a little more risk? Enjoy the podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. So Hamilton's police chief and mayor, if you heard CHML News yesterday afternoon and certainly this morning, uh, police chief Eric Gertz apologizing after a report found that the police response to violence at the 2019 Pride Festival was inadequate. As chief, I take full responsibility for what took place at Pride before, during and after and I do apologize to the community for inadequate planning and preparation. Chief Gert apologized during the latest meeting of Hamilton's Police Services Board and says he's committed to achieving all 38 recommendations within an independent review of the police response to Hamilton Pride 2019, including a review of the police services culture. Gert is also committed to rebuilding trust and repairing the damaged relationship with the LGBTQ community. Scott Bergman, the report's author, believes it is possible. This will undoubtedly take time. It requires a concerted effort on the part of all parties. But as a public institution, the onus rests first and foremost with the Hamilton Police Service. Police Services Board members want to see a plan by September for achieving Bergman's recommendations. Ken Mann, 900 CHML News. As you heard from Ken's report, Scott Bergman is the Toronto lawyer who was tasked with analyzing what happened last year and uh, provided a bunch of recommendations on what should happen next. And he joins us now. Mr. Bergman, good morning. How are you? I think we just lost him. <laughs> I swear I pressed the right button. We'll get him back. Lickety split. But yeah, um, it was a big day, I think not only for police, but for the local LGBTQ community to hear that apology. Because that has been, well, as we know, I mean, this happened last year. That's been a long time coming. Chief Kurt yesterday saying, quote, we can do better. We must do better. The mayor also apologizing in that regard. On behalf of the Hamilton Police Services Board, he also said the city denounces all organizations, groups, or individuals that promote hate, violence, intolerance, discrimination, and hate speech in the community. So once we get Mr. Bergman back on the phone, we'll go through some of the recommendations and and how he compiled the report as well. Because, I, you know, that, that was obviously a powder keg moment in this community, for the LGBTQ community, obviously. You know, he must have done a lot of investigative work in terms of asking several or many people about what happened. We have Mr. Bergman on the line now. Scott, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, Rick? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Let's start from ground zero. Um, You were selected to undertake this endeavor. How did you go about conducting your investigation? Well, the first thing we did, Rick, was after we uh, met with the, uh, the board, Uh, We went out into the community, we drafted terms of reference, and I should say I was assisted by a colleague of mine, Ben Elzinga-Jang, who was tremendous. What we did is we reached reached out to members of the public, particularly uh, people who are members of the Two-Spirit and LGBTQIA plus communities, and asked them to review our draft terms of reference so we could get input into exactly what the communities wanted from our review and what they wanted us to look at. And once we had uh, compiled input from about 40 or 50 different people, 
We then finalized our draft terms and presented them to the board. And those draft terms were approved. I believe it was December 12th was the board meeting that that happened of 2019. So then we were uh, kind of on our way after that was approved and we started from there. The report says the public messaging coming from police after Pride was seen by the LGBTQ community as, quote, an abdication of the service's essential function to serve and protect. What did you hear from community members on that? What we tended to hear from community members over and over again was that the messaging coming from the police and from the very top down was that they they were not invited to attend Pride in any formal capacity, and they had applied for a recruitment booth, uh, which had been denied by Pride organizers. And as a result, had they been invited, had they been wanted there, the police response would have been more uh, rapid, and it would have been it would have been much quicker. So the messaging that the community was taking away, whether intended or not, was that had they been invited, had police been invited, they would have responded sooner. And certainly that if that were true, and I didn't find that that was necessarily true, but that's the messaging that was taken home. But if that were true, that would certainly be an abdication. And that's how it was viewed in the community as an abdication of the role of police. Whether police are invited and whether they're welcomed at an event like Pride or any other large public gathering, they obviously have an overriding obligation and duty to serve and protect. Agreed. Uh, There are 38 recommendations in the report. How were those compiled, and did you expect the report to have that many when you started this process? Well, when you go into a report like this, we're doing an investigation, and we're not looking for any pat answers. We're not looking to make any recommendations, but it all arises from the facts that we find. So I didn't have any predetermined or preconceived notion of how many recommendations there would be, how many uh, pages the report would be. But the fact-finding process led us to a number of recommendations, and those are the ones we felt um, had to be made and ought to be made. So no, pre- no predetermination whatsoever. We went in very much with an open mind. It could have been that we went in and we found that there was no problem with the way in which everything happened, and we would have made no recommendations. It was probably unlikely in retrospect, but it was certainly a possibility. We're chatting with uh, Toronto lawyer Scott Bergman from Cooper, Sandler, Shime, and Bergman, author, author of Pride in Hamilton, an independent review into the events surrounding Hamilton Pride 2019. Uh, let's go through some of the recommendations that this report makes. Uh, and I'm looking at number 15 to 21, which are kind of grouped together, an apology and commitment from Hamilton police basically to do better. And this is obviously a vital component to the go-forward process. It is. And it doesn't mean it's a cure-all. Certainly there have been apologies from public bodies in the past that have gone uh, nowhere, but it's a very important starting point. In order to start the healing process, and as you know, in the factual findings, one of the things we say is this is a long process that's going to take many years to heal very deep wounds. So part of the process has to be an acknowledgement and then a starting point going forward. You have to start from somewhere, and that's what those recommendations are really aimed at. Number 36, and I know I'm kind of bouncing around here, but Hamilton Police should consider undertaking a diversity audit or organizational cultural review. Why did you feel that this was important? Well, right now it's unclear exactly where HPS's culture really lies. And it was outside the scope of my review and the terms of reference for my review 
to undertake that kind of organizational culture review. But I think what the police really need in Hamilton is they need a snapshot of where they're at currently, and then that can allow them to plan going forward. So if meaningful change is going to happen, you have to know what you're changing from. And right now, I don't think there's been any kind of independent assessment to understand truly where the service is at culturally. Um, Other police services around Canada have done similar things. They use outside consulting firms to do it, and they've proved rather successful. So in order to understand where you want to go, you've got to understand where you're at. And right now, I don't think the police are quite there. Uh, number six is a really interesting one to me. Um, it says, while pride organizers and pride attendees may not want uniformed police officers present and patrolling within the event space, the option of having paid duty officers do so should at least be available to organizers. Why was this important to be in the report? Well, one of the things that happened with the organization of Pride in 2019 was, uh, and for very understandable reasons, there was a decision that uh, paid duty officers wouldn't be in the event. One, because they were uniformed, but two, because they're, they're very expensive. Um, the problem with um, having just hired security is they don't have all of the qualifications that officers have. They don't have the know-how that officers have, and they don't have the ability to control crowds the way in which officers have. So one of the things that we had said was, well, you might want to consider subsidizing the cost. If Hamilton were to subsidize the cost of paid duty officers, there may be a greater likelihood, quite frankly, of pride organizers being able to utilize paid duty officers. Uh, Recommendation number 22, and I believe um, Hamilton Police Services Board member and City Councilor Tom Jackson asked a question of you on this regard, and it surrounds Hamilton's LGBTQ uh, liaison officer, um, should be a full-time position. Right now, it is, um, I guess, a go-between between her regular duties as a detective constable, and her name is Rebecca Morin, as well as the liaison officer. So you're suggesting that this should be a full-time position. I do. I do think it should be a full-time position, and in order for it to be effectively done, um, Detective Constable Morin um, is phenomenal, and she has the greatest of intentions, and um, She will do an excellent job in any capacity. I have no doubt about that. The problem is she's right now got, I think, in my view, two full-time portfolios that are sitting on her desk. So she has a full caseload as a detective constable, as any officer who's a detective constable in a crime management office would have. But she's also got a very large and weighty portfolio with the LGBTQ liaison officer position. And that from a community perspective, if the community's perception is important, which it is, the perception that you have an officer splitting duties between uh, the liaison officer and a detective constable may very well be seen by the community as the uh, the leadership not taking the role as seriously as it could. So by making it a full-time paid position that's supported by the union, I think what you do is you create a different impression in the community, hopefully. We're chatting with uh, Scott Bergman, the Toronto lawyer who compiles the 2019 uh, police response to Pride report here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill today. Is there a recommendation in, or, or two that I haven't highlighted that you feel should be highlighted? Well, I think one of the things that, that's very important to highlight is uh, the need for ongoing communication and that there's a coordinated messaging strategy coming from the police. That's number one. Number two, and probably more importantly for Pride going forward, is not the communications, but the planning for Pride. The planning for Pride this year was inadequate and fell apart in a number of different ways. And it's because of the planning and the way it fell apart that violence ended up unfolding. 
For example, the agitators who showed up, and that's all they were, were agitators, people who were trying to disrupt a family-friendly environment. Those agitators, there were tools for police to make sure that they didn't disrupt that event. Unfortunately, due to the planning and the fact that you only had four uniformed officers on the complete opposite diagonal side of the park, uh, did not allow for that to happen. So I think the planning portions are very important. Um, and also going forward, messaging has to be very important because the community needs to know that Hamilton Police Service is working in support of the LGBTQIA plus and two-spirit communities. Mr. Bergman, this is an outstanding report. Thank you for putting it together. I know the entire community is uh, thanking you in that regard because now we have, we all have a go-forward plan to make this thing right and, and, and bring these two, bring all communities really in Hamilton together. Appreciate the time today. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks so much, Rick. Have a great weekend. You too. Scott Bergman is the Toronto lawyer with uh, Cooper, Sandler, Shime, and Bergman, who compiled Pride in Hamilton, an independent review into the events surrounding Hamilton Pride 2019. It's suggesting that police fell short in its planning and preparation for Pride 2019 with months of miscommunication and a lack of communication with organizers who were trying to work out a plan with police for uh, the June event last year. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Does systemic racism in police departments across Canada exist? It's a debate that is raging across the country. And will defunding the police help at all? We heard from Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller. He delivered a scathing rebuke of Canada's National Police Force, the RCMP, saying the Mounties are not immune to systemic racism. And he questions whether RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky is fulfilling a promise that she made a couple of years ago to, quote, examine the systemic causes of violence against Indigenous women and girls in Canada and prevent and eliminate further violence. We can't deny that there is systemic racism in, in all our institutions. It isn't by some magical stroke of fate that the RCMP would be immune to that. Uh, we know it exists, uh, and we have to acknowledge it. I look at the events of the last couple weeks, I look at an event that my colleague Mike McLeod from the Northwest Territories told me about an officer uh, who had a prior um, prior conviction of sexual misconduct being put in Fort Good Hope, and I ask myself, is that the best? Is that the is that the absolute best? Miller's stinging comments came just hours after the Prime Minister laid out how he defines systemic racism. In many cases, it's not deliberate, it's not intentional, it's not uh, aggressive individual acts of racism, although those obviously exist. It is recognizing that the systems we have built over the past generations have not always treated people of racialized backgrounds, of indigenous backgrounds, fairly through the very construction of the systems that exist. In defense of RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, uh, Justin Trudeau saying that he has worked closely with her over the last couple of years and that he trusts the commissioner to lead reforms at the RCMP. Does systemic racism exist in police departments across Canada? How do we change this? Can it be changed? And if so, how long is this going to take? There's also a growing call to defund police, reducing police budgets, using those funds to support social programs, affordable housing, etc. Hamilton's Police Services Board 
just yesterday said, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at what a 20% budget cut would look like. They've endorsed a motion from Councillor Chad Collins to this regard to examine a potential $34 million cut, what that would look like, what that would do to the service. However, Collins and other members did make it quite clear that that, they're not quite convinced that a, a cut of this magnitude would work to end systemic racism in police. Or just to end systemic racism, period, in the community. He also referred to funding uh, reductions as an attempt to neuter police. Strong words. Adding that the public needs to know the consequences of what they're asking for. It's become quite obvious that um, the defund the police campaign, whether it's here or elsewhere, is an attempt essentially to neuter the police. Um, and it's my own opinion that providing less resources for the police prevents or prohibits them from doing their job properly. And I believe ultimately leads to reduced public safety as well as reduce safety, safety for our officers if they do not have adequate resources. All right, let's bring in our next guest here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML, Clint Tulin. And I don't think Line 4 is working, Alicia. Sorry, he is gone. That's the second time Line 4 has failed us. Damn you, Line 4. We'll get Clint Tulin on. He's the president of the Hamilton Police Association because, well, we have a, we have a number of questions for him. Obviously, he speaks for... The boots on the ground, so to speak, the officers on the front line, those who are dealing with these very issues in your homes, in our community, at traffic stops. They're dealing with all of this. And what would a $34 million cut to the police budget? And I think last year, maybe, or maybe it's actually this year, the 2020 police budget was $171 million. So reducing that to about 140, 135, somewhere around there, what kind of impact would that have? We've heard from other police departments in terms of the defund police. We're going to go with line four again. Do you want to, do you want to try and put them on? <laughs> I'm having the hardest time with line four today. Clint, do we have you? I'm here. Hey, sorry, Clint. I, you know, that line four is giving me trouble today. Stay away from line four. Yeah, I, I, I don't like it. Now now Siri is chirping at me. Well, hold on. Let me mute her. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Clint Tulin is the uh, president of the Hamilton Police Association. Uh, we have lots to get to today, and, and I do want to get to the Pride Report as well because that's a big part of, uh, you know, uh, making that relationship better again or, or as, as good as we can make it. And, and that's an important conversation we have to have in this community. But we've been hearing uh, this week especially – uh, systemic racism in police forces across Canada. We've heard from Brenda Lucky, the RCMP commissioner, the prime minister chiming in yesterday, Mark Miller, indigenous services minister, uh, police forces from out west, from out east. Uh, here in Hamilton, what are your thoughts on the whole systemic racism in police? Is it there? Does it exist? Well, I think that the the, the phrase systemic racism is a difficult one uh, when it comes to defining itself and whether or not it exists. Um, you know, in theory, in the way I, I was just listening to the way the uh, prime minister described it, um, that's a reasonable description. But I think particularly in our own communities, what you have to do is look at the individual people who make up those institutions. And in this case, it's, it's the Hamilton Police Service. Um, and what I can say uh, definitively is that our officers and our civilians are committed to serving anybody and everybody within our community 
It's not an issue of uh, whether or not there's there's systemic racism. For me, it's whether or not these people are actually showing these these um, these acts of uh, racial bias or otherwise. So, and I can tell you uh, from my experience of working in Hamilton for 20 years now, is that it's just not the case. Is there an individual uh, incident that occurs uh, from time to time? I'm sure there are, and uh, whether or not it's a systemic thing and an issue across the Hamilton Police Service, my answer is no. To me, and this is just my personal opinion, when I when I hear the word systemic, uh, w- whether it's racism or, or anything that else, I think of something that is running rampant and is, at this point in time, uncontrollable, and I just don't see it. Uh, it Rick, it just does not exist in the Hamilton Police Service in in that way. Our officers... Um, you know what? We we deal with oversight on a regular basis, whether it's the OIPRD, whether it's the SIU, or it's our own internal. Our our members are very much aware that uh, their actions are being scrutinized on a regular basis, and I can I can just tell you definitively that type of behavior is most certainly not systemic in that sense. We 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 are always looking to do better and to to make sure that we're as sensitive as we can to the community. But in general terms, I can tell you that that is not a problem in the Hamilton Police Service. What's the conversation like among the membership? Is it, is this a hot topic right now? Because it seems to be a hot topic everywhere else. Are, are police officers in Hamilton talking about this? Um, well, I, you know what? It has become a, a way of life, unfortunately, for us. And so our members in general, you know, they, they get frustrated. They, they get upset. They, um, they, they clearly, you know, it bothers them because it's not just an attack on the organization. It's an attack on them as an individual as well. And our members know they are not racist. That's all there is to it. And what goes on down in the state is a completely different um, kettle of fish is what it is. Uh, up here, and particularly in Hamilton, it is bothersome because you go to a call and people, people because of the general conversation, whether it's an uneducated view or not, is, you know, oh, look at this, it's another racist cop. Well, that, that, that certainly bothers our members. We're chatting with uh, Clint Tulin. He's the president of the Hamilton Police Association uh, about a number of things. Uh, the, the idea of systemic racism in police forces, uh, not only here in Hamilton, but across the country. That's a conversation that's being had right now. Defunding police is also a big, uh, you know, it, it's trending. It's a big hot topic as well. Uh, and yesterday at the Hamilton Police Services Board, uh, members agreed that they would look or, or at least initialize a report that would look into how a 20 percent spending cut would look like in terms of Hamilton Police. Can you envision what this could possibly look like? Well, I can tell you, and I, I actually, um, I've, I've already commented on this, about 89% of the budget goes to staffing costs. And so if, if you're looking at a 20% cut in the budget, you're going to be looking at a significant decrease in staffing. That's all there is to it. There's, there's no other way around it. So I think that... Um, any, you know, to, to entertain that, that notion, um, that's what you're going to actually have to deal with. Where are those cuts going to come? What services? And it is going to be services that are going to be cut and uh, what kind of an impact that's going to have on public safety. Others might say cutting the budget uh, and using those funds for those other services would uh, remove police from kind of dealing with those services or issues. Would that be an accurate statement? No, actually, I don't think that that is an accurate statement because 
uh, I've said this before as well, that, you know, we are a downstream institution. We, we deal with the uh, social um, issues that have um, come as a result of the, not, 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 I was going to say a failure, but shortcomings of institutions above us, whether it's healthcare, whether it's mental health, whether it's education or socioeconomic issues involving housing and, and drug addiction, those kinds of things. We are the ones who, we are the catch basin, and we deal with those people. So the, the, the answer is no. Um, reducing or defunding our, our uh, operating budget is not going to make it, uh, and, and, and redirecting those funds, it's not going to ultimately have uh, a positive impact. We are going to still be dealing with those problems down the road. Because if there is a criminal element or a call to 911 to respond to a certain situation, whatever it is, and there's a, let's just say, a mental health aspect to that, police still have to respond to that incident. You're still going to be there. So even if you defund that portion of police, officers still have to attend. Well, and and I I can give you a really good example, and particularly on how efficient uh, that policing in general is, and in particular in Hamilton, when you look at our MSERP program, that is dealing directly with mental health issues, particularly people in crisis, where we have teamed up with uh, a nurse from St. Joe's. Um, our apprehension rate, and for the viewers that don't understand that, when a person is in crisis and they need to see uh, a doctor, um, our apprehension rate dropped from 75% when officers would go to a call like that down to 12% when MSERT was introduced. So we, we not only do uh, great work when given the resources, uh, we're also there all of the time. So as well, when you get along that, uh, that line, you're absolutely right. There isn't a, um, an institution or a body out there that can evaluate the, 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 whether or not an act uh, should be subjected to a criminal investigation or otherwise. We, as police, we don't determine the mental health of a person and whether or not they're criminally responsible at a particular incident. We do what's uh, within the, the law and we react to, to, to issues based on that. So you're absolutely re- uh, right, Rick. We are going to be there anyway. Clint Hoolin is our guest. He's the president of the Hamilton Police Association. Joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill today. Um, you mentioned shortcomings from up above. I think we're uh, kind of paraphrasing what you said. But basically, you know, funding cuts from the federal and provincial governments have really downloaded a lot of services, uh, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's mental health aspects of, of improving those in our community. Uh, and, and police are having to deal with those. If that funding was still in place, would you think officers would have to deal with less of those aspects of uh, of what's happening in our community? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you're absolutely right. That is lost in the conversation so often that the, the, the downloading has had a huge impact on municipalities. And to suggest, you know, as well that we're not we're not sensitive to that. We understand that our municipality is 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 overburdened when it comes to the social services in particular that they're they're now responsible to pay for. So absolutely, I think that that would have an impact if that funding was still in place. Um, but the reality of it is we always look for, in, in, in the, the most compact of terms, the most efficient and economically viable uh, way to do things. And every time uh, that I, in my experience in 22 years of policing, it ends up being in the hands of the police service.
Let's uh, switch gears and talk about the 2019 uh, Pride Festival report. Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert and Mayor Fred Eisenberger both yesterday apologizing after the report found that uh, police response to violence at last year's festival was uh, inadequate. Your response from the Hamilton Police Association's uh, viewpoint? Well, like so many things that police do, we could have done things better at the Pride Festival. Um, I, you know, there was a lot of dynamics and I have read the report. Um, I can tell you from, uh, from an association perspective, we, we want to be able to mesh with communities that we serve and protect. So that could have most certainly been done better. Uh, as the report indicated, it wasn't the individual police officers on the ground. They did what they could with the information and the resources that they had. Um, what I would like to see from an association perspective is the leadership at the Hamilton Police Service and the leaders who represent uh, that community to, to have those sit downs, have those discussions and come to um, at least mend those fences. And I can tell you if the leadership in either organization is unable to put aside the past or, or their own personal biases or whatever that is, then perhaps they need to remove themselves from those discussions so that those communities can build those bridges. That's a good point, because if yeah, if you don't have an open mind and are not willing to work together, it's just not going to work. Was there? There's 38 recommendations in this report. Were there any that kind of um, uh, really raised an eyebrow to th- uh, in your mind to say, wow, I didn't think of that, or yeah, that's a really good idea? Um, well, you know, we, we've, as well, I, I, I sat in on the Police Services Board uh, meeting yesterday, and I know that we do have uh, a liaison officer that's not assigned full time to that. I think that that, um, that most certainly um, would be a, a, a positive step forward. Um, I don't remember whether or not that was a specific recommendation. Um, you know, in doing an evaluation, I think um, it, it's a good idea in theory of uh, how we're doing. It, it's one of those um, kind of floating type of um, issues, whether or not you're doing well, but Nothing really stuck out. Uh, I think it was fair. I think it was balanced. Um, I do, I mean, obviously from an association perspective, um, I think that uh, one of the things that are, is constantly lost when it comes to lo- evaluating the behavior or the, or the prep or the planning is that we have other information that we also act on. And it's not necessarily information you want to share with the public or, or so on and so forth. But I think that that was kind of lost in in the in the um in the value the total evaluation of of what happened but there was no real big surprises we only got about a minute left i, I want to ask you about this there was a report presented to the police services board yesterday that shows youth crime dropped by almost 17 percent in hamilton in 2019 and part of that was the school liaison program which now the hamilton public school board wants to review because there's some complaints that it perpetuates racism is that program valuable to keep it's absolutely valuable to keep and i'll tell you it's really unfortunate that the narrative that's going around. I've dealt with this, uh, the open letter. Um, that is all misinformation. I shouldn't say all misinformation. Uh, the, the content of the letter has value and has uh, obviously legitimacy, but conflating two different issues that uh, had no business being uh, spoken to in the same sentence. Our school liaison officers are there to prevent crime, to uh, provide bridges to the, to the youth so that they have faith in police officers, that they are people that they can go to, removing them and demonizing police amongst our uh, young people here in Hamilton, I think is a really, really bad idea. I'm on the same page with you on that. Clint, appreciate the time today. Enjoy your weekend. 
Thank you very much. Clint Hulin is the president of the Hamilton Police Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Starting today, parts of Ontario are being allowed to get haircuts. Hallelujah! They can visit a mall or sit on a restaurant patio. But it has Hamilton and the GTA feeling a little left out. When will more restrictions be lifted here? That's a good question. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the answer. Hopefully uh, over the next uh, week or so, we we go through the, the committee and then we go to the Minister of Labour, then it goes to our health table. Premier Doug Ford says discussions are ongoing for when Toronto and the surrounding areas can join stage two of reopening the province. And when the green light is given, Ford stresses local health officials could decide against it. And if they don't feel their area is ready, then they can shut it down as well. The GTA accounts for about 67% of Ontario's COVID-19 cases. Ford says we're going to have to hold on a little longer until those numbers come down. Everyone's doing their very, very best to make sure we get to that stage. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Thanks, Brianna. Meanwhile, the limit on social gatherings will increase from 5 to 10 province-wide, but people still have to maintain that physical distancing, those two metres away from anyone outside of their own household. Child care centres, as you've been hearing on CHML News across the province, also now able to open, but it's not yet clear how many will be able to implement new pandemic safety measures immediately. We had a story on uh, yesterday afternoon and this morning on how Hamilton Child Care Centers may not be 100% ready to swing open their doors. So with more COVID-19 related restrictions being eased across this province, are some people, and we can focus here on Hamilton, are some people or more people willing to take a little more risk? perhaps letting their guard down. Dr. Dominic Mertz is an associate professor of infectious diseases at McMaster University and medical director of infection control at Hamilton's Health Sciences, and he joins us now. Dr. Mertz, good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, and you? Not too bad at all. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is uh, an important discussion because I I, I get the feeling, maybe it's just a gut feeling, that a lot of people, or at least some people, are going to let their guard down because they're hearing, hey, restrictions are being eased. We can do this, that, and the other thing. I think we can go one step further. People already did that for weeks um, because I, I think there's some level of, let's call it alarm fatigue, um, hearing the same thing over and over again, but losing the faith that uh, our policies actually represent the same urgency as they would have at the beginning of the lockdown. And I think what's happening now is that policy hopefully catches up with what people are doing, and I hope lock them in a reasonable number of, I would say, risky behaviors rather than having people to go above and beyond that. So yeah, maybe it's human nature that we're just letting our guard down. This was just bound to happen? I think that was bound to happen, yeah. And um, as I said, I think what our job now is, is to educate people on how to stay as safe as reasonably possible, appreciating that this virus will be with us for the months and years to come. We have to learn to live with the virus rather than hope for elimination or vaccine to, to help us in a few months. So really about 
educating people how to make the right choices given your current situation from a family perspective, risk perspective, based on what's happening in your environment and so on. We've heard from public health officials, especially following that uh, situation, I think it was a couple of weekends ago at Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto, where there were just hundreds of people gathering outside, uh, that the vi- that it was okay, especially because they were physically separating from, the, from each other, at least some were, uh, and it was okay to do so because the virus can't spread as effectively outside as it would be able to do inside. So is it okay for outside? Should we stay indoors? What's the recommendation? Um, no, that, that's a very good point, and it didn't look like anything bad happened from, from that event with, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of people meeting up in that park, but given that it was outside, I think most people agreed from the very beginning, it's much lower risk than if the same would have happened inside. So one of the easy take-home messages for people is if you meet up with other people, do it outside whenever you can. It's summer, so most of the time you can do so and stay outside. It it will reduce the risk because there's wind. Any droplets will disperse much more easily. That reduces your risk significantly. So we're going to be seeing, at least in some places in the province, people getting their hair cut again. They're going to be visiting more stores. They can sit out on restaurant patios, even though there's going to be some physical distancing measures put in place. Child care centers are going to be open as of today in the province. Do we expect an increase in the case count? I think I I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. And then the question is, what's the, the healthy medium between increase in, in case counts versus I would call it the overall health of people, right? And that, uh, we focused very much on our health being defined by staying away from any potential COVID infection. I think we need to find a healthy medium between preventing to the best we can to get infected, but at the same time making sure that we get for our mental health and well-being what we require as human beings, and that involves some uh, social uh, interactions for sure. Um, to me, it's, it's, it should go back to the individual to make the right decisions. And as I said, I think the job for us as well as the media is to educate people to do the right things. And when you look at other jurisdictions like like BC, they have those nice flow charts which will tell you, look at your local epidemiology, look at your personal risk profile. If you are 80 or 90 year old and not in, in, in a good health, you will be much more careful than if you are a kid or a 20 year old with no other health concerns whatsoever. And then you also need to look at uh, within your bubble, so within your household, or if you frequently see your mom or grandma or uh, other family members who may be at higher risk, that may influence the level of risk that you take personally as well, because you want to make sure that you can keep those others that interact with you on a regular basis safe as well. So it's it's a complex system, which makes it very challenging, but with like those easy recommendations, like stay outside whenever you can, keep your two meters uh, distance when you can, do your hand hygiene, stay home when you're sick. Um, Just doing that will already go a long way. 
Our guest is Dr. Dominic Mertz, Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases at McMaster University and Medical Director of Infection Control at Hamilton Health Sciences here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill today. One of the, and there's probably a lot of worst case scenarios still to come, especially with the second wave, but one of the things that we as a society, we as governments don't want to see is um, uh, an increase in that case count and having to bring those restrictions back to a stage one or even more restrictive than that. From a public health perspective, what do we have to see to reverse course, to go back to what we were doing just a few weeks ago? I think we may have lost Dr. Mertz. Was he on line four? We'll just proceed. <laughs> line four is possessed today. And I'm going to answer the question that I had because, you know, as a good reporter, you should have at least the answers to 60% of these questions. And I think I have the answer to this. And the easy answer is just to see an increase, a dramatic increase in cases and deaths, I think would force public health officials to have that conversation with government officials to say, hey, we have to go back. We have to backtrack now here. We got to close those hair salons. We got to close those daycare centers. We got to close those restaurant patios again. I know the weather's nice, but this is one of those instances where we got to reverse course. Uh, we have Dr. Mertz on the phone again. One last question for you, doctor. Sorry, we lost you there. But from a public health perspective, what has to happen for us to reverse course and go back to uh, more severe restrictions? Is it just a dramatically elevated case count or a dramatically elevated death toll? Well, I, I don't feel like the government has made that decision as of yet. If you ask me, I think the single most important metric we, we have to keep in mind is our hospital capacity. What we want to avoid um, or we have to avoid is that we we end up in a situation like Northern Italy did or New York City did where we were unable uh, or the hospitals were unable to cope with the number of people who came in. That's certainly the latest moment where you have to put very uh, very strong measures in place again. Optimally, you will do that before that, so you never get there. And there are several metrics out there you can use that give you an idea of whether you're going in, moving into that direction, that maybe at some point we will have to go back from phase three to phase two, whatever, uh, based on what's happening to avoid that scenario. Dr. Mertz, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of the day and have a good weekend. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Uh, Dr. Dominic Mertz is the Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases at McMaster University and the Medical Director of Infection Control at Hamilton Health Sciences. And at the end of the day, I think we all have that personal responsibility to be more responsible and uh, you know, avoid those scenarios and those circumstances in which we, were, we or someone else is going to be put at an increased risk of uh, catching this virus. Continue to wash your hands, continue to wipe down those high contact areas, avoid people <laughs> as much as possible. I know it's hard to say. And, uh, and we'll eventually beat this thing. And not only that, maybe a second wave, if it does come, uh, come about, won't be as severe. Because I'll tell you one thing, we'll be ready for it. Let's just hope we can avoid it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your favorite podcast from. 
I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.